You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Monster House presents... Monster Talk is proud to be a part of the Airwave Media family, home of such shows as... Fork in the Road, Small Things Often... And Therapist Uncensored. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Karen and I were excited to talk to Chris French again. Chris has been working in the overlap between psychology and parapsychology for many years and has written extensively about his findings. Next year, he's going to be bringing out a book about his work in this area. And we caught up with him as he's about to join the road tour for the very popular BBC radio series Uncanny with Danny Robbins. So let's just hop right into that conversation. Monster Dog. Is that is the sound okay for you? Yeah, you sound good. You sound good. Thanks for making time for us today. When does the book come out now? You said it was moved from it's Halloween March. time to March. Yeah, okay. It's gonna be okay. it's March next year. Yeah. Okay, well we can talk to you again then. There's always something to talk about. Yeah. I, oh, I would think so. Yeah. Great. You've been here before. Uh, as a reminder, we do these things. We record them, and they'll go out later. This one will go out next week. I'll just hop yeah. in with an intro, and then we'll just jump into questions. And our okay. new formats, you know, 30 to 40 minutes. We're trying to get out episodes mm-hmm. every week now, so the machine yeah. must be mm-hmm. fed. <laughs> exactly. The uh, ghost okay. in the machine. Uh, uh, we're excited to welcome back Chris French. Chris is head of the Anomalistic Psychology Department at Goldsmiths University, London. He's a fellow of the British Psychological Society and the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. He's published many articles and wrote the book Anomalistic Psychology, along with Anna Stone. And his latest book, which is coming out next year, 
uh, is called, and I love this, The Science of Weird Shit. And it has a forward by Richard Wiseman, also a friend of the show. Uh, I find this funny because uh, my colleague Jeb Card uh, talks about this whole what do you, the panoply of weird paranormal things as weird shitology. And I think I think he means there he's studying the study of weird shit. But <laughs> <laughs> are you facing any uh, pressure on the title? I, I've seen a lot of uh, mm. sort of creative ways to get around. Um, Asterisks. Yeah, exactly. Exclamation points instead of eyes, all sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. I I kind of assumed in my head, well, first of all, that was not what I was going to call the book. I was going to call the book Why Weird Stuff Matters, which I still think is a pretty good title. And then just jokingly, I said to a few friends, or I might just call it the science of weird shit. And almost without exception, people said, oh, I'd buy that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a more sellable. And then I thought, well, we, you know, will, will the publisher accept that? No comeback at yeah. all on it. No, they loved it. And in fact, Who's in my publisher? head, it's a MIT press. So uh, yeah. you know, there we go. Grown up publishers, yeah. Yeah, well, I've got a book coming out next year called Bitch about the history <laughs> and use of the words. So yeah, they're just getting more lenient with stuff like I this. It's great. That's, that's it. Yeah. In, in my head, it did have an asterisk for the yeah, I. Yeah. In final for me order. too. Yeah. Um, but no, they they insisted no asterisk. We're just going to go for it. So oh, there I love you go. it. Love yeah. it. Well, th- th- now I'm feeling empowered to write a new book called The Big Book of Real. And that I <laughs> any word. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> well, that's very exciting, though. So, so this is this kind of like a um, a broad spectrum look back at the topics that you've been looking at for your career, or or is it what what sort of the content here? It's exactly that. I mean, it's I, I've been wanting to write this book for at least at least a couple of decades, and the day job just kept getting in the way. Um, I mean, I retired in October 2020 and uh, finally had the time to actually get the damn thing finished. Um, And, uh, yeah, no, it is all very exciting. I've I've kind of wanted to do a popular science book on anomalistic psychology for a long time. Um, I mean, writing the textbook was, you know, it had its own rewards, um, but having a having a popular science book where you can kind of have a much lighter tone, you know, you can throw in funny stories, you know, it's much more conversational, I hope, in tone. Um, and so far, the people who've read it seem to like it. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Good deal. Fantastic. And so, Chris, there are so many things that we could discuss with you and uh well, we we thought we'd start by talking about a little bit about the psychology of ghosts and hauntings because mm-hmm. you've done so many investigations and so much research into this uh, over the course of your career. And I thought we'd begin by just asking, for humans, what needs do you think that belief in ghosts and hauntings fulfills? I think it's. I mean, I think with respect to that question, it's basically uh, our fear of our own mortality. Uh, and, right. and maybe maybe even more so um, the idea that when our loved ones die, that's it. That's the end of them. We'll never have any contact with them again is something that most of us find quite uncomfortable to think about, say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, and so any kind of evidence which seems to support the idea of life after death is going to be something that we we go for. I mean, we all know about confirmation bias. So the evidence doesn't really have to be that good to support the idea that there is evidence for life after death. Now, although 
you know, people usually think of ghosts as being kind of quite a negative, scary kind of concept. I mean, it's not for everybody, it has to be said, but it is it is for most people. But even having said that, it it is some kind of evidence for life after death. And I think that's the basic emotional motivation behind it. Definitely. Yeah, that's that's an important distinction. I think uh, there is sort of a, a, I guess maybe it's because of fiction and uh, the way people present these stories. Um, the stories that are spooky and scary and involve recurring events tend to be the ones that get dramatized and written up. But I know personally plenty of people who have anecdotes about Oh, I smelled something that reminded me of my mother, or I heard, uh, you know, a bell that uh, we used to hear, you know, at a certain time, and like it just all these sort yeah. of like yeah. super warm memories and happy yeah. and like and and that's just our friendly ghost. I mean, there's so there's lots of non-confrontational um, kinds of uh, people just living with it, thinking that that's the explanation. Um, so I, I wonder about that because, like, I, I think skeptics, a lot of times we get caught up in the is it real, is it not real thing and mm -hmm. forget that these 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 experiences, they serve a purpose. I mean, like, you know, I know lots of people who are atheists, but clearly lots of people participate in religion. They're getting something out of it, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> right. I mean, and I suppose in the, in this context, the, the question of um, people going to see mediums, I mean, in my mind... I make a huge distinction between the deliberate con artists, the frauds who are who are out to uh, exploit vulnerable people just just purely mm -hmm. in their own interests on the one hand. But I do think that's probably the minority. I think most people who think they've got some kind of mediumistic gift genuinely and sincerely believe that they have. And that raises the whole question of uh, when people go after a bereavement to, to for, for a reading, it's a different. It's, it's two different questions, as you're making very clear. One question is, well, are me, can mediums really talk to the dead? Well, I think we all know what opinion we have on that question. But mm -hmm. the question of, well, does it do more harm than good? That has received hardly any research, and it, and it's a shame because I suspect that under under some circumstances it may do some harm. But I suspect under a lot of circumstances it doesn't. It maybe provides some temporary comfort to get people through a difficult period. And then they can stand on their own two feet and get on with their lives. So, you know, they are different questions. Well, and do you find uh, in your research that there is a big distinction between these people who uh, maybe practice mediumship from home and or read tea leaves and coffee grinds and something like that? And the, and the, the very famous psychics on TV, perhaps <laughs> those we shouldn't name, uh, yeah. who, I mean, in my experience anyway, uh, a lot of them have said off the record, oh, I don't, I'm not psychic or I don't have any abilities and they know that they're frauds. Well, one, one of the, it varies, fir tongue firmly in cheek in my, in my book, I have uh, French's first law and French's second law. French's <laughs> second law is the higher the profile of the psychic, the more likely it is that they're a deliberate fraud. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. You know, uh, most of the kind of, I mean, we've tested a number of people who claim to have psychic ability or medium mediumship, um, and yeah, they, they don't pass the test, surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. um, but the readings are not really all that impressive, whereas I've seen cold readers in action 
And even though I know they're using cold reading techniques, I can be blown away by how impressive the reading is. And that's because oh, yeah. they're systematically exploiting the technique. They're kind of mm -hmm. getting every bit of juice out of it, you know? Um, yeah. And, and they're usually so, psychologists or magicians. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's right. You know, they're, they're kind of uh, the people who, who kind of, you know, as I can say, they, they've, they've, they've practiced the technique. They, they know how to get the most out of it. Whereas with your average workaday medium or psychic, they may be doing something similar without being aware of the fact they're doing it, but they're not able to exploit it to its full potential in the same way. Right. Um, and so now that's one situation. Even if you are one of those kind of workaday mediums or psychics, you'll probably have enough satisfied customers that will come back because most people are so polite, certainly in this country, that they may come away and tell all their friends, that was rubbish. <laughs> you know, and I'm never going back again. But as long as you've got enough people who are coming back and telling their friends that, oh, I was really impressed. It was it was really good. And of course, a lot of the time, people people don't go for those readings with the intention of trying to figure out whether or not that the medium or the psychic can really do what they claim they can do. They go for comfort right. and for advice and so on. And if and they, they if believe. <laughs> yeah. And if that's what they feel they're getting, they'll go back again for more. Um, but if you are a, 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 a high profile medium or psychic who's doing stage shows and TV programs and so on and so forth, then the temptation, you've got to deliver every, every night and every time you're in front of the cameras, you can't you can't afford to have some readings that are just where people are just totally unimpressed and say that's rubbish. And so yeah. the temptation to cheat is that much stronger. Uh, we, we're thinking a lot about uh, ghosts and hauntings this time of year. Mm -hmm. The uh, mm -hmm. I, I think I, I've actually been following the British uh, podcast slash radio show uh, Uncanny with Danny Robbins. Oh, and, you have. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's definitely made it over here. Uh, I've had it recommended by numerous Americans, so I, I, but I, I don't have a real sense of how popular it is in the UK, except that I see lots of ads for it when I it, go. It's, it's hugely popular. Um, I mean, it's transferring, well, not transferring. It's a new series that just started on BBC Radio 4, and on top of that, uh, they're, they're, they're doing a few TV specials um, starting, um, I think, mid-October. Nice. I mean, I'm in one of them. Um, and then we're also going on tour. We're doing a nationwide Ooh. tour. And so I'll be Fantastic. doing about 15 or 16 gigs up and down the country on stage with, with Danny and Evelyn Hollow. Um, and it's all going to be very theatrical. Um, so, yeah, he's just, I mean, Danny Robbins at the moment, it's just going from strength to strength. He's also got um, had, had a play in the West End that won awards and he's now on Broadway and, and also in Australia. I mean, you know, this may explain really why he doesn't answer our calls. What's <laughs> he's a very, very, very busy man. He's got a book that's just come out. Obviously, his book has come out ahead of his tour so uh although i'll be trying to get a mention in any available opportunity i won't actually have any copies to sell inside you know yeah well let me yeah let me, so for people who haven't heard it it's an interesting show because what it does is they present ghost cases and and i i'm gathering that these are often pre-recorded uh and then they yeah. cut back to experts so they have skeptics and non-skeptics or skeptics and believers however you want to call that and you, they sort of like have a section where they talk about the phenomena and then they say, hey, is there any sort of skeptical explanation for this? And then what is the sort of more paranormal explanation? Uh, it's it's 
it's an interesting twist on what I think a, a lot of TV people try to produce here, which is the let's have one skeptic and one believer go out and investigate a case. But that's not yeah. ex- mm-hmm. this is this is more about the person's experience and then a little bit of commentary from experts on either aisle side. I think is that a I, great I do idea. Think- the, the skeptic. I mean, I think the format works very well, and I think Danny is a very good storyteller. Uh, you know, he's he's. He, I mean, you've probably noticed of the ones you've listened to that he's uh, he kind of ramps it up as he goes along. Bloody you know? hell, Ken! Yeah, but if you think that was scary, just wait till you hear what exactly. Next. Yes, yes, <laughs> you know, and that kind of stuff. So he's, he's very, very good at doing that. Um, and I think one thing that I, th- I think is quite nice about the program is that the. Uh, the experts, such as we are, kind of do tend to treat each other with respect. Yes. It doesn't ever deteriorate into a shouting match. Yes. But again, even our bits obviously are pre-recorded, and so they can be edited and so on. And I do think that the sceptics are on a bit of a sticky wicket here, uh, insofar as obviously you're dealing with anecdotal evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so inevitably you kind of find yourself going back to the same old themes of the unreliability of eyewitness testimony and, oh, well, that sounds like sleep paralysis and so on and so forth. But, yeah, the thing is that's true. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you can't actually, you know, you can't obviously ever give a definitive explanation for what happened in the past when you weren't there and nobody was recording anything objectively. It's uh, it's impossible. So um, it's quite fun, though, to do. I, do, I mean, I yeah, I do enjoy taking part. Uh, and I'm quite looking forward to the tour. That should be quite exciting. Yeah, yeah lots of fun. And if we can continue on that point uh, with what you're, you're talking about, being the, the talking head, being the token sceptic in a sense, uh, we wanted to talk with you about you have had this career of being a media skeptic appearing on television and podcasts and radio for a long time uh as as the media skeptic can we talk a bit about the pros and cons of this of you doing this over the years yeah yeah i mean again i mean you know i i am very aware of the kind of um inherent problem in doing this insofar as there are lots of skeptics who would say you, you're giving kind of um too much legitimacy to the whole enterprise you know by mm. by taking part you are saying this should be is something that should be taken seriously i mean as it happens i think it is something to be taken seriously yeah uh, yeah but i mean it, it's part of human experience you know so i do genuinely you know, obviously that's what the book's about um but there's, i mean it, it is that that qu- whole question of weighing up i mean i know i've taken part in some truly dreadful tv programs um but even there there's there's a kind of decision to be made as to well you know one if i don't do it somebody else will two it's probably going to be quite fun three yeah uh, i've probably got some things to say that maybe you know somebody who's not been doing it as long as me wouldn't think of so you know i've got a kind of wider perspective so maybe a bit more expertise from the skeptical side of things you you know we're we're looking at fundamental questions of human perception and memory and largely coming back with conclusions that suggest we're not all that good at perceiving things or remembering them and and that's uh, nobody wants to be told that sad news, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yes, yes, I, yes, and no. I, mean, I, I, I see where you're coming from on that one, but I mean, I think I think most skeptics, certainly those that are interested in psychology, 
uh, kind of feel that it's actually on balance a good thing to be aware of the fact that we all have these biases. Mm. You know, it's mm -hmm. not just the yeah. believers that, that yeah. fall for confirmation oh, yeah. bias or for any of these other cognitive biases. We've all got them. But knowing about them means you can mm -hmm. at least try your best to stop them from influencing you too much now you, you you won't succeed because we're all human and you know that's that's the way that's what it means to be human is to be biased um yeah. but having said that i think you are in a better position um and also i mean for me you know i'm, I'm interested in all all kinds of weird shit and that includes <laughs> things like the kind of um unfounded conspiracy theories that's that do the rounds and so on and so forth and some of those things are obviously just you know very very dangerous and very very damaging and 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 part of you know again it's always been the case for me that anomalistic psychology was also a really useful vehicle for teaching critical thinking skills mm -hmm. and, I, and i think they the, the advantage of critical thinking skills generalizes beyond just the weird stuff Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. True. Yeah. And so, Chris, with all this exposure that you've had as a media skeptic, do you find that uh, it helps with outreach and do you get uh, members of the public contacting you and uh, emailing you, reaching out and um, talking to you about things or, or wanting yeah. your, your you know, giving feedback, that kind of thing? Yeah, that does happen. I mean, and I can't always find the time to reply to every email I get because I, I, sure. I, I get too many. I mean, there, and there are some that I feel I can be more helpful on than others. I'm not a clinical psychologist, for example. Um, right. But if someone writes to me and describes an experience that I think that sounds like a classic case of sleep paralysis, 
I can mm. reassure them. I can send them some literature on that. Um, and, and hopefully they'll realize that you know, it's not a ghost. It's not a demon. It's this thing called sleep paralysis that we, we, we do know about. It's scientifically and medically recognized. And hopefully that will help to calm them down. Um, sure. But I, as I said, I mean, and also I get, I get sent uh, emails from people claiming to have psychic abilities. Um, now, I mean, we as a couple of chapters in the book on kind of very, yeah, we have tested a lot of these kind of claims <laughs> over the years. But I have to confess that from my point of view, it's usually a, a situation where I'm thinking, really, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm, it takes a, an awful lot of effort to set up mm. an appropriately controlled test, even for a very simple claim. And I'm almost certain in advance, obviously, that you, I'm, you, you're not going to be able to demonstrate your claim under properly controlled conditions. Um, but... I mean, so, you know, it's a kind of mixed blessing in a way. I mean, I like to kind of, I'm more interested in kind of getting the, the, the message out there through going and doing public talks. I enjoy doing that, doing things like mm -hmm. podcasts with you guys, um, the book, obviously. Uh, when it comes to kind of testing individual claims, that is something that is probably on balance, not the best use of my time is my feeling. Why do you think so many seemingly paranormal concepts sort of evaporate into a puff of statistics when you test them under lab conditions? <laughs> <laughs> Could it possibly be that paranormal forces don't exist? Just hmm. a suggestion. Hmm. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Never. <laughs> oh, I, I think it's worth giving that some thought. No, I mean, there's... I mean, what's interesting, I mean, what you do get from taking part in those kind of things and, and, and all the other stuff we're talking about, the, the, the kind of media stuff and so on, is it does give you kind of think some re, some useful insights into, if you like, the lay psychology. You know, it's, it's one thing to do, you know, what, what, what we spent a lot of our time doing, a lot of our time doing, was, which was testing particular, uh, well, on the one hand, paranormal claims under, under properly well-controlled conditions, um, and on the other hand, sometimes testing our non-paranormal explanations. You know, can we find evidence that people really are as susceptible to the power of suggestion as, as we would claim that they were? I mean, I, again, just to expand on that a little bit, it's I think it's very easy for sceptics sometimes to um, come up with very plausible counter explanations for a paranormal claim. I think it's much more convincing if you can actually produce some evidence for your explanation for what's going on, you know, rather than just, oh, well, it was probably the power of suggestion. You know, we do we do studies where we show the power of suggestion. We show how memory can be distorted and so on and so forth. You know, so I, and, and that for me kind of uh, adds strength to our side of the argument. Um I've forgotten what the original question was. Now I'm afraid. Oh, it was <laughs> just why? Why do so many paranormal concepts evaporate into? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Statistics. I, was just saying, I think yeah, it's yeah. just that basically, you know, my my view is that, that, that there was nothing there to to kind of find in the first place. Um, yeah. But it is it is often uh, interesting. I mean, you know, we bend over backwards. I was at the QED conference uh, a couple of weeks back in Manchester, and I did two workshops on testing paranormal claims, and. As I said there, we, we bend over backwards to design a test with the person who's making the claim. You know, it's got to be a fair test. It's got to be something that they say, yes, this is a fair test of my claim in advance. We get them to sign something to that effect. 
And then, of course, they fail the test and then decide in retrospect it yeah. wasn't a fair test after all. But yeah. that's the way the cookie crumbles, you know. But yeah. <laughs> we, we do really go out of our way to try and make the test as fair as possible. Well, I asked because you recently wrote an article, uh, and I think this is nuanced, uh, that had the somewhat provocative premise that parapsychology is not pseudoscience. <laughs> <laughs> can we can we talk about that a little bit? What do you, what do you mean indeed, by that? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, can, I mean, again, when I first discovered the joys of skepticism, uh, and that would be back in the early 80s, having read James Alcock's Parapsychology, Science or Magic, and, uh, yeah, it was really exciting. It was great. I loved reading those. I've never heard of these people. James Randi, Ray Hyman, and, you know, all these other people. It was, it was fantastic. So I was reading all that stuff. Um, and very much, the, I mean, I know it's still the majority view from skeptics today. It was para, parapsychology is a pseudoscience. I mean, there's a huge, you know, huge discussions about the nature of pseudoscience and how you distinguish real science from pseudoscience. Um and, you know, I mean, again, I really enjoyed the fact that it went beyond just the paranormal stuff. So you could, you're talking about N-rays and uh, polywater and homeopathy and all this other stuff. It was fabulous. Um, but the more I actually interacted with parapsychologists, uh, I actually realised that they weren't all incompetent. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are some kind of, again, I talk about this in the book, but I mean, one, one of the kind of... Uh, people who had quite a big influence on me was Bob Morris, you know, the, the late Bob Morris, uh, cursed the chair of parapsychology, really great, really lovely man. Um, and I re had realized that uh, he, he welcomed skeptics to come in and look at the setup that they had in their, in their lab up in Edinburgh um, to make kind of, you know, if you saw any loopholes, tell us what they are and we'll try and tighten them and so on and so forth. And they put as much effort into if you like, kind of the, the, the looking at what looks like it's psychic but isn't, as they did into trying to produce evidence to see whether telepathy was real or not. And he was very well informed on all the skeptics' arguments and so on. I mean, he's just one example, but I realized that uh, actually the criticisms that people, the, the things that people used to list or still do list in those kind of you know, here's my set of criteria for distinguishing whether something is a pseudoscience or not. Empirically, a lot of them didn't actually stand up. And there were, there were a couple of papers that I read um, where someone had gone to the trouble of actually kind of looking at articles, published articles in journals and kind of trying to rate them in terms of uh, these various criteria and it turned out parapsychology really didn't do, it didn't do score perfectly on on all of the criteria for a real science. But then again, neither does psychology, neither do a lot of other areas of science, you know. Um, and overall, I thought I just decided it was probably unfair to call parapsychology a pseudoscience if those are the criteria that we were using. That makes sense. Yeah. And the other, I mean, another, another point that I make out of make this in the article that you're referring to is that... Um, you know, when people like myself and Richard Wiseman and Sue Blackmore and James Randi are actually testing paranormal claims, it would be hard to argue that we're not doing parapsychology. And hopefully we're yeah, doing point. scientifically and proper with well, you know, with proper controls, in which mm -hmm. case the basic argument is that at its best, parapsychology is just as scientific, certainly as psychology. Fascinating. 
I think I think yeah, I, it, I've certainly heard Joe Nichols describe himself as a cryptozoologist. You know, for for the same reasons, right? <laughs> talk, yeah, talk. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, science is a method. You know, it's not exactly. an established body of facts, and and you can approach. I mean, again, you, you do end up for me in this kind of weird situation of thinking that you can have. A, a genuine science about something that doesn't exist, <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. uh, because I, do, I still, you know, I'm not convinced that paranormal forces exist, but I still think you can approach that question scientifically, uh, and and that's therefore for me makes parapsychology a, a legitimate science. Well, and it does open up that other, I think, equally interesting question, which is if it doesn't exist, why is it so important and so believed by so many people? You know, so mm-hmm. yeah. It's like it. It again. It's like I. I think that's that's where I'm really coming down after all these years. It's like uh, whatever this is that we're doing. Uh, I think we're trying to better understand humans, and and humans do a lot of weird stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just weird shit. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the other thing for me as somebody who's kind of you know, kind of very interested in both the strengths and the weaknesses of the scientific method. Mm, also true. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, and this, 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 this particularly is something that I gave a lot of thought to. Um, you remember a few years back, Daryl Ben published a paper. Do on I? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure you do. <laughs> uh, got a huge amount of attention, obviously, as it would. Um, and uh, myself and Richard Wiseman and Stuart Ritchie, uh, each attempted to do a, an independent replication, which we knew from the, well, not also we knew, but we expected from the off would not replicate. Our ulterior motive was to try and find a quick way of getting a paper into a, a, a top psychology journal. That didn't work out because the editor rejected it on the basis that we don't publish replications. Um, and then we got the same treatment from a couple of other high impact journals. And then this became a story in itself because it revealed a, a huge bias in scientific publishing that it's not about it. It's basically about publishing new findings and positive findings and not failed replications. But they're um, really but important. But they're really exactly important. Exactly. Yeah. Because that's distorting what's actually happening on the ground, you know. And and so uh, and that, that also then fed into the what was called the replication crisis in psychology, um, where we realised it's not just. I mean, parapsychology has replication issues that I think are worse than any other area, but some of the some of the things that were being pub- that had been published even in text standard textbooks for years in psychology, people began to say, well, we don't think this stuff replicates. We don't think it's a real effect. And that raised the whole question of, well, why, why, you know, how did these effects arise in the first place? That It led to a period of healthy self-criticism mm-hmm. within the distance. Mm-hmm. And we all became much more aware of what are called questionable research practices. And now this is not out-and-out fraud. It's not making your data up. But it's just there are so many decision points in designing and running and analysing your data from your experiments where you can give yourself the benefit of the doubt. And it doesn't feel like you're doing a kind of, you know, major crime at the time. But all these things can be cumulative and lead to a situation <laughs> where you end up with a lot of spuriously significant results being published in the literature. Absolutely. Uh, and I can look back now on the stuff that I've published in mainstream psychology. And some of those effects, I'm pretty damn sure, were not genuine effects now. But I mean, I published them in good faith at the time, you know. Sure. Uh, yeah. And that's kind of, uh, that's been interesting because it raises that whole, you know, uh, I've I've said this before, you know, all science is about trying to sort the signal from the noise. What would a science look like if it was just noise? 
and I think it would look like parapsychology. Mm. <laughs> Nicely said. Yeah, it's very, very eye-opening. But Chris, we want to have you back on the show next year, a little closer to the uh, time of the release of your book. But uh, in the meantime, we've had you on the show before and we have talked about your favourite monster, so we thought we'd shake things up a little bit, ask you a slightly different question. Could you tell us about your favourite case? My favourite case? Now, does this mean one that I've been directly involved in myself? Ooh, or it's my anything. It is your call, your call. Okay. All right. Well, if we're going to do favourite case kind of from the general literature... I think I would probably go for the Rendlesham UFO case. Ooh. Uh, oh, really? That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I think I mean it's a damn sight better than Roswell. Sorry, guys, you know, but it <laughs> is. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you've got a situation there where you had kind of an, an official memorandum from a, 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 a an, an American Air Force USAF officer saying. Yeah, basically, yes, a UFO has landed, essentially, you know. So that's pretty good. Um, and there's also, I mean, again, one of the things about that case and a lot of my other favourite cases is that um, I think a lot of the classic cases, whether we're talking about UFOs, ghosts, uh, cryptids or whatever, are those cases where you just happen to have, coincidentally, a number of different things happening at the, about the same time. And so, you know, any any one kind of simple explanation doesn't work so that the believers can say, oh, yes, but you've not accounted for this. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think, Always I think that. And the Rendlesham case is just fantastic in that respect. You know, there, there were several <laughs> things that just happened to happen around the same time, you know. Uh, so I'll probably go for that one uh, in terms of I mean, I've not actually most of the kind of investigations I've been involved in have been uh, as part of TV programs. And I guess that the best one there, the one that certainly, you know, is most memorable in my mind, uh, back back in the last century, towards the end of the last century, uh, I, I took part in uh, a program about reincarnation claims amongst the Druze uh, and got to spend about three weeks in Lebanon it was the only time in my life I've ever stayed in a five-star hotel, so that was memorable. In oh yeah, that is um, yes. yeah. Um, but um, it was a really, really, really interesting experience. Um, you know, they 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 had quite a big budget for the filming, so uh, and we, we because a lot of the background research had already been done for us. Things were set up. We already had interviews set up, kind of so on and so forth. But that was. Uh, and it was quite an eye-opener just in terms of I felt I really learned something from doing that. I mean, I went out there not knowing quite what to expect, but with a strong suspicion that a lot of these past-life memories that um, particularly children came up with amongst the Druze society uh, may well be false memories. And I, I came back um, pretty much convinced that that's what was happening. Yeah. But it was a, just a brilliant experience. Wow. Sounds like it. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you cool. so much for coming back to talk yeah. to us again. My Always pleasure. It's been lovely to talking to you guys. And uh, we'll put links in the show notes for people to catch up with the Uncanny Tour. 
Uh, and uh, when, yeah, good luck with that. Too. Yeah, for sure. You? And then uh, there's obviously you've been on some previous episodes. So they can check the back catalog there, and maybe someday Danny will have time for us. Um, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I'll put, put in a good word. Would love to chat with him word. about the show. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and uh, we'll bid you adieu. Okay. We'll keep you, Take keep care. in touch too for next year. Absolutely. Please do. Please All right. do. Monster dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard a conversation with Professor Chris French, whose upcoming book on his career of scientific investigation into paranormal topics is titled The Science of Weird Shit. We'll try and have him back for more discussion in 2024 when his book's closer to hitting the shelves. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones, and we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you for listening. And if you've been enjoying what we've been making, please leave us a positive review or tell someone about what we do here. People will listen to you when you tell them to listen to us. And we appreciate that so very much. been a Monster House presentation.